Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up into the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. We all know the story. Certainly if we've been in Sunday school from childhood, we've sung that song, we've heard that story, we know what a what an unusual story it is and what a captivating one. Yet there are a lot of things about it that I think will be helpful to us as we enter into our missions month because this account brings together the two major themes that we emphasize throughout the month. Number one, the work of evangelism, and particularly as it applies to worldwide evangelism. And number two, giving, the worship of giving as we support the work of the gospel around the world. And both of those things are brought together in this account. This is actually the second report of conversion in Jericho. If you back up just a few verses into chapter 18, you will find the account of the healing and salvation of blind Bartimaeus, the poorest of the poor, the neediest of the needy. And he cried out in his desperation, and Jesus heard his cry and healed him of his physical blindness and healed him of his spiritual blindness and brought him into saving knowledge with our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we move into chapter 19, and we come to the salvation of the richest of the rich, the wealthiest of the wealthy, in that category of people who so often do not feel their need of anything, and particularly not of God, for they've got it all taken care of, and yet the Lord saved one in that category as well. And so from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, from the obviously needy of the neediest of the needy to the most self-sufficient, our Lord has a way of bringing all to repentance and faith. And that's what we see in this account. None are too poor and needy for Christ to reach down and save them. None are so wealthy as to not need Christ. And we're looking at the wealthy one in chapter 19. For those who take notes, I'll give you my outline. Number one, Zacchaeus finds Jesus, verses 1 through 4. Number two, Jesus finds Zacchaeus, verses 5 and 6. Third, the crowd finds fault, verse 7. And then number four, Zacchaeus finds salvation, verses 8 through 10. Zacchaeus finds Jesus. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Let's begin by noting where this man lived, and it is in the city of Jericho, as we know. And if we think back to the Old Testament days of Joshua and the children of Israel coming into the promised land, we realize that Jericho was situated in a place we might even call it the gateway to Palestine, or at least one of those. And it turns out that it was very much that, even in our Lord's day. 
If you can find a map of Jericho, particularly one that shows the major trade routes on it, you will find that a number of major trade routes pass right through Jericho and then on their, on their way further south. Jericho, of course, had been destroyed in the days of Joshua, completely flattened, but it was rebuilt and enlarged and was known as the Little Paradise. When it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt better and, and more beautiful than ever before. Some of the enlargement that was evident in the days of Christ had taken place under Herod the Great, the great builder. I'm surprised as I make my way through different parts of the Bible at how many different things Herod the Great had his hand in building and, and enlarging and beautifying all throughout his territory. And, and he spent a great deal of time uh, working in the city of Jericho and bringing it to its place of desirability. A city that was filled with palm trees and rose gardens and was beautiful and spacious and had a desirable climate. It really was what we would call in our day a resort city. It's the kind of place that a lot of people would like to live in. The kind of place that if people did in that day what we do in our day, a lot of people no doubt would have retired and moved to Jericho because it was just such a beautiful place to be. And that's where Jesus came, making his way to Jerusalem. He came to Jericho and traveled through Jericho. But beyond where he lived, we need to consider who was this man that Jesus encountered. Named Zacchaeus in verse 2. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Zacchae. It's found in Ezra 2.9 and Nehemiah 7.14 and that list of people who returned to the land of Israel from Babylonian captivity. It is a shortened form of the name Zacharias, which we find both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The father of John the Baptist was Zacharias, and this is a shortened form of that name. It's a name that in its meaning is pure or righteous, as Hebrew names always have a meaning. But the main point is this is obviously a Jewish name. This is obviously a Jewish man. Everything about his name is thoroughly Jewish. He's not a Gentile. He is a Jew, unquestionably. But he is the chief tax collector for, it doesn't need to be spelled out here, for the Roman Empire. And that's what made publicans, as tax collectors were called, so hated by the Jewish people because they were considered to be traitors. They turned their back on Israel. They're working for the enemy. They're working for Rome. And they were also extortioners. Most of them were rich because they had the power of the Roman army behind them and they could extract from people more taxes than were legitimately due. Probably not so many as to arouse a a uh, real rebellion, but just enough to irritate people and little by little to make themselves rich. And Zacchaeus was not just any old publican. He was the chief tax collector of the city of Zacchaeus, one of three primary ports of custom in the land of Israel, where the goods that traveled through paid their taxes, paid their customs when they traveled through. And there were a lot of tax collectors there working for Rome. 
And Zacchaeus had risen through the ranks, and he was now the chief of them all. He managed that whole operation in Jericho and beyond, collecting taxes from all of the people that passed through, all of those camel caravans, as well as taxes from the people, the individual, the income taxes, the, the taxes that Rome collected. He had his hand in all of that. And therefore, it would be reasonable to assume that he was not only wealthy, he was the wealthiest of the wealthy. He was not only a rich publican, but he was the chief of the publicans, the richest of them all. He probably had one of the biggest houses in town. He was probably one of the best-known people in town, but he wasn't, by a long shot, even close to being one of the best-loved people in town. In fact, just the opposite, he was one of the most hated people in town by all of the Jewish population. He was rich. What does that bring to your mind? Different people have different concepts that come to mind when you say, oh, he's rich. Some people view that in an admirable way. He's done well for himself. I'm trying to do the same. Some people view that in a scurrilous way. There's no way to get rich except by cheating and lying and scheming in the minds of some people. And so people have different ideas, but this man was rich. But I think the real question is, can a rich man be saved? Because it's only a few verses before in chapter 18 when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler. Remember him? Came to Jesus, said, good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, I've kept all of them from my youth up. Red flag. (laughs) But Jesus didn't stop at that point. But red flag. How could anyone imagine that he had kept all the commandments from his youth up? But this self-righteous man thought he had. I've kept all the commandments for my youth up. Okay, said Jesus, let's try out this one. You haven't really given a lot of thought to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. So I tell you what we'll do. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And the rich man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. His possessions meant more to him than Christ. His possessions meant more to him than salvation. His possessions meant more to him than heaven. He'd rather hold on to the things of this world for a short time than to let them go. They, were, they, they weren't so much that he was holding on to them as they were holding on to him. They'd wrapped themselves around his heart. He couldn't let them go. The disciples came and questioned Christ after that, you recall. They were actually amazed that Jesus sent him away in the way he did because in their minds, wealth was an indication of God's favor. And so when they heard rich man, again, different people have different ideas when they hear rich. And in their minds, if he was rich, then he was favored of God. He was probably nearer the kingdom of God than most people. And here Jesus said just the opposite. He sent him away. And they said with amazement, well, if this man can't be saved, who then can be saved? Because Jesus had just said... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And you could just see the disciples, all 12 of them, standing there, mouths wide open. They'd never thought of that before. That was entirely opposite of their concept. And so they said, well, who then can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. With man, it's impossible for a poor man to be saved. With man, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. 
But with God, all things are possible. It's difficult, maybe more difficult than average for rich people to be saved because of their, their, their covetousness and their love of material things and the prestige and the luxury and all that it purchases. And it's very difficult for them to put Jesus first in their lives. But yes, Jesus can save the poor, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus can save the rich like Zacchaeus. What did he want, this man? Well, he had a strong desire to see Jesus. And he sought to see who Jesus was. He was working real hard to get close enough to Jesus to see him, to hear him, to evaluate him. And that in itself tells us something. What causes a wealthy, self-sufficient man to want to see Jesus so badly? Is that natural? I think not. Something's going on in this man's life already. He sought to see Jesus. He had a strong desire. Was this mere curiosity? I think there's more. A strong desire, but it was a frustrated desire because we're told that the crowd was large and the man was small. Those two things didn't get together very well. He was in the crowd of people. He was, you know, up on his tiptoes and he couldn't really see over the crowd. And he said, at this rate, I'm never going to get a good glimpse of Jesus. But he was, he was creative. He was industrious. He wasn't a dumb guy. And so he knew which way the route was going and he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Now, we have trees in America called sycamore trees, but it's not the sycamore trees that you would find in Jericho. Sycamore trees in Jericho were fig mulberries, or sometimes known as sycamore figs. I'm told that the tree itself was very similar to an oak tree in America, but it had evergreen leaves that did not turn brown or turn loose year-round. And because of its beauty, it was chosen to line the major streets and boulevards of the city of Jericho. And so it was the kind of tree that people could climb up into easily. But can you imagine a wealthy man shedding his dignity to scramble up into the branches of a tree? I mean, that's not really the most dignified thing in all the world to do. A child, yes. A teenager, yes. But a grown man, a middle-aged or past man, a wealthy man climbing up into a tree. But that shows you how great was his desire to see Jesus. It was undignified, but he didn't care. Because when spiritual desire is strong enough, we don't care what people think. If your fear of what other people may think or say keeps you from doing what you know the Lord wants you to do, then there still needs to be a greater work of grace in your heart, doesn't it? Because when God really gets a hold of a heart, then the only thing that really matters is, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's no problem to follow the Lord and believer's baptism when your heart has really been changed. It's no problem to serve him in an undignified manner when your heart has really been changed. Zacharias was, un, was willing to climb up into a sycamore tree, and so what to what anybody else might think? He was going to see Jesus, if at all possible. Yes, Zacharias was looking for Jesus, and he figured out a way to find him. 
And so it seemed to him that he was looking for Jesus and was was successful in his finding Jesus. That was his desire. That was his will. But when we come to verses 5 and 6, we find out what was really going on. Verses 1 through 4, Zacharias seeks Jesus. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus seeks Zacharias, and he finds him. It's a divine encounter. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. How did Jesus know his name? Well, we don't know exactly. He may have had somebody tell him that, but of course he is the God-man. And there were times when he operated only in the humanity and did not operate it according to his deity. And there were other times when he called upon his omniscience, and this may have been one of those times. He didn't need anybody to tell him the name of this man, because it's evident that he had had his eye on this man before he ever saw him, isn't it? Isn't that what this is conveying? That the Lord is looking for this man. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus, but Jesus sought to find Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Divine command. Because I not only have a divine command, you come down from that tree, but it's because I have a divine appointment. He doesn't say it would be nice if you would allow me to come and visit you in your house today. He said, I must stay at your house. You say, that's pretty bold, inviting yourself to somebody's house when they haven't invited you. (laughs) We consider that to be a bit rude, don't we, when people do that in our day and time. But I think Jesus is making an important point here. Zacchaeus needs to understand who he's dealing with. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, was a man who commanded others under him. He was used to being in charge, being in control. But now he's meeting one who is higher than he is, and he's got to surrender. He's got to obey. He's got to give himself to the authority of another one. And so for a very reasonable purpose, Jesus commands him, You come down, and I must stay at your house. And the response of Zacchaeus is the right one. He says, yes, sir. And he hurries and comes down. And he gratefully, joyfully receives him into his house. Yes, I must stay at your house today. And that, I'm told, in the language and idioms of that day, basically meant I must spend the night with you. He was inviting himself home to spend the night and all the hospitality that would be involved in that. But of course, Zacchaeus had a huge mansion, no doubt, and a retinue of servants, no doubt. But that doesn't mean that he would just automatically welcome a stranger to come home. But in this case, he is delighted. God's at work. But I must. I must. This is a divine appointment. Can you remember anything else in the Gospels that are where we find a similar phrase from Christ. Remember in John chapter 4 where we're told that Jesus, and I'll use the old King James because that's what I lived with all my life and memorized all my life, and it tells us that Jesus must, needs, go through Samaria. And you look at the map and you say, well, 
he didn't have to go that way. There was another way. <laughs> In fact, that wasn't even the usual route that Jews took when they were going from Galilee to Judea. They usually crossed the Jordan, came down the other side, came back the other way to avoid Samaria. So why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? Because he was on a mission to seek and save that which was lost, and he had a particular person in mind. He already had a target painted upon the back of a woman that as yet in the, in the humanity he had not yet met. But she was there, he knew she was there, and he was going after her, the woman at the well. He must needs go through Samaria for that divine encounter. Zacchaeus, I must needs stay at your house. This is a divine appointment, a divine encounter. I've been working toward this point for quite a while now. And so we see that it was not so much that Zacchaeus was seeking Christ as that Christ was seeking Zacchaeus. He came to understand what the hymn writer of the hymn we often sing meant when he said, I sought the Lord, like Zacchaeus did, I sought the Lord... And afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Zacchaeus is learning that truth. And so we are not surprised by the glad reception because obviously God, the Holy Spirit, has been working in his heart. So we read in verse 6, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully, an obedient and glad response, received him joyfully. He's honored to have such a guest, but his changed heart makes him want to receive Christ. He receives him gladly. Unrepentant sinners are uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus Christ, but repentant sinners are glad to be in the presence of Christ. Unrepentant sinners don't seek the Lord in Scripture, but repentant sinners do. Unrepentant sinners don't enjoy going to church and hearing sermons, but repentant sinners do. Unrepentant sinners, if they want to keep up a, a form of Christianity, will go to a church where they're entertained rather than where they're taught the Word of God. But repentant sinners are hungry for the Word of God, and they're going to find a Word-centered church because that's where they want to be. And Zacchaeus was delighted, was delighted to receive Jesus and to be close to him. Someone has said that a sinner seeks God like a thief seeks a policeman. Think that one through. He's generally running the other way, isn't he? But, but, when a thief repents, he's glad to turn himself in. When a thief repents, he's happy to find a policeman and to confess to him because he's tired of carrying the load of sin. He's tired of, of running every time he sees a policeman. He's, he's tired of this life of crime and this sense of the guilt of his crimes heaping up and heaping up and heaping up on his soul. And so when there's real repentance in the heart of a thief, he's glad to find a policeman and to get this thing over with, take my consequences and get my debt to society paid and make this thing right. And it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. When a sinner desires cleansing and forgiveness and freedom from his sin, he's not running from Jesus. He's seeking him and Zacchaeus gladly 
received him into his house. Zacchaeus finds Jesus. Jesus finds Zacchaeus. But the crowd finds fault. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Who are they? The they of this text. When they saw it, they all complained, saying, Awful lot of stuff is attributed to them and to they, isn't it? Who are they? Well, the they here is obviously the general crowd of Jews, not just the Pharisees. We have already read prior to this occasions when Pharisees have talked like this. You only have to turn back a couple of pages to Luke chapter 15. And you'll find, let's see if I can find it here in verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we're accustomed to this kind of attitude from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious crowd, but this is not the religious crowd alone. It no doubt includes them, but this is the general population, Jewish population of the city of Jericho. They hated Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was a traitor to their minds. Zacchaeus was a sinner in their minds. And so what did they see? When they all saw it, they started complaining. What did they see? They saw Jesus befriending a notorious sinner, at least in their minds, one who was a notorious sinner. So what did they do? Well, they do what most folks do when they don't approve of something. They complained. They griped. They criticized, right? They dissented. They voiced their disapproval of Jesus and what he was doing. Is that your attitude toward Christianity? Is that your attitude toward the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and toward God's people? Is that your attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that your attitude toward God? Do you have a, a, a complaint with God and you fault what he does and why he does it and the way he does it? And you, you'd do it better if you were God. And if you have that attitude, then you're acting just like this crowd and demonstrating that you don't have a converted heart, do you? What was their complaint? He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. What was their complaint? The complaint was Jesus associates with sinners. Can you imagine? What was their complaint? Jesus shows kindness to sinners. Can you imagine? What was their complaint? Jesus identifies with sinners. Going to his house identifies Jesus with this man and what he does. You better be glad that Jesus identifies with sinners. If Jesus didn't identify with sinners, where would our hope of salvation be? Thank God Jesus is the friend of sinners. Friend of sinners, friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He will, or he can, set you free. How grateful we are for that. But what does this indicate? about the crowd, the general crowd. It indicates, first of all, their self-righteousness. They do not view themselves as sinners. Jesus went to the house of a sinner, not like me. They sound like the publican that went down to the temple, or the, uh, 
the Pharisee rather that went down to the temple with the publican and he lifts his eyes toward heaven and says I thank God I'm not as this man I pay my tithes I pray my prayers I'm a righteous man and the publican just bowed his head and smote his breast and said Lord be merciful to me the sinner and who of those two crowd two two men went home saved that day Jesus tells us it was the publican who went away justified not the Pharisee but it reveals their self-righteousness it reveals their spiritual blindness they considered only certain sins as sinful which was his not mine (laughs) right they considered sins to be sinful if uh, the general population my friends and neighbors agree when they agree that something's all right then it's all right if they agree it's wrong then it's it's a sin we see a lot of that today it used to be that society in general agreed that adultery and fornication were a sin and shouldn't be encouraged and approved and so Society generally went along with that, at least acted like they agreed with that. But you see, society has changed, and now it's all right to do that in the eyes of society. My friends and neighbors say it's okay to have premarital sex. My, my friends and neighbors say it's okay to commit adultery as long as it's consenting adults. There's no harm done. And so those aren't bad sins, but, but, showing a desire to oppose the spread of homosexuality or showing opposition to abortion, we all agree now that's really, really, really bad. Those are the bad sins. You see, society turns it around, and which shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us at all. Sinners are sinful. And sinners will justify the sins that they approve of, the ones they want to do, and they will they will condemn the sins that they think they're not guilty of. That's what's going on here. He went home to be friends with a sinner. And they show their self-righteousness, and they show their spiritual blindness, and they show their prejudice, their economic prejudice. He's a rich man, so I don't think much of him. He wouldn't even have to be a publican for a lot of people to take that position. Their political prejudice he lines himself with Rome, so he's as terrible as they come. He's like, he's, he, he supports the wrong political party. I can't have friendship with him. I'm prejudiced against him. Be careful. They show their hypocrisy. Everybody else's sins in their minds were much greater than their own. They didn't really think they had many. But ultimately, it shows their folly because they're cutting themselves off for their only hope. They are sinners too, but they don't see it. They are sinners that need a Savior, but they don't realize it. They are turning their backs upon Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. What hope is there for them? None whatsoever. The notorious sinner is the one who's going to heaven when this story is over. The self-righteous religious crowd are the ones that are all sliding rapidly into hell. And we'll go there unless their hearts are changed. So Jesus finds, Zacchaeus finds Jesus, and Jesus finds Zacchaeus, 
And the crowd finds fault, and Zacchaeus finds salvation. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. What a surprising testimony coming from such a notorious sinner like Zacchaeus. Now the question is, where was he when he said this? Did he say this when he came down from the tree? Maybe. Did he say that when he got home with Jesus? Well, if so, there was a crowd of people around there listening because it's clear that this is a public statement. He stood up to be clearly heard and said to Jesus, he wouldn't have had to do this if this was just a little handful of people, his family and Jesus around the table. It's a public declaration wherever he is. And why did he do this? Some say, well, he did this in order to defend Christ. He didn't like the crowd criticizing Jesus. Jesus is going to be friend, to home with a sinner. How bad is that? So he stands up to, to defend Christ and make things better for him, some would say. But there's more to it than that. Because in this statement, he makes a firm commitment, a public commitment. It'll be hard for him to go back on this once he's declared it publicly. Some people say when it comes to giving, and that's what he's doing here. He's getting ready to declare he's going to give half his goods to the poor, and he's going to restore any, anything he's stolen fourfold. He's getting ready to make a financial commitment. Some people act as if, now, we shouldn't make commitments when it comes to finances. Well, somebody forgot to tell Zacchaeus on the day he was saved. It's God-honoring to make the right kinds of commitments. But he promised to give half his possessions to the poor. He had a lot of them. And he promised to restore... Any stolen goods, any stolen money, tax money that he had taken, with a fourfold restitution. If I took a hundred dollars deceitfully, I'll restore four hundred. If I took a thousand dollars by by manipulation, fraudulently, I'll restore four thousand dollars. The law generally, you can study the Old Testament law, but the law generally required 20% restitution. One-fifth added to it. Restore what you took and add a fifth part. 20%. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to go way beyond that. Maybe that's the minimum required, but I'm going to do a whole lot more than that. You're going to give 40% restitution. No, I'm going to do more than that. You're going to give 100% restitution. You're going to give back double. No, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to give four times as much. Wow. How can you afford that? Well, isn't that the evidence of his repentance and conversion? That he's not only willing to make things right, but in such a lavish manner. When people profess to repent, but then they go on with self-justification and trying to make every people think that they didn't really do anything wrong, that's evidence that there really is no conversion in that heart because there's no real spiritual repentance. But when somebody has repentance that has been given to them by the work of the Holy Spirit... They just want to make everything right and do so overboard. Do more than is required. 
And Zacchaeus is a manifestation of that. Interestingly, these verbs in verse 8 are present tense verbs. Literally, he's saying, Lord, I am giving half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I am restoring fourfold, which have caused some to think that he had already started this, that the evidence of conversion had already taken place in his life. But there is another way to understand these verbs, and that is in what is called a futuristic present. And I think that fits the context better because it's pretty clear that Jesus said, when did, when did salvation come to this house? When did salvation come to his heart? It wasn't yesterday or day before, last week. It was today. Right? So I think we must take these as futuristic presents, which means it should be translated something like that. Something like this. Lord, I now give, or I am here and now giving half my goods to the poor, etc. But this also tells me something else. I mentioned it a moment ago, or raised the question, how could he afford to do this? He couldn't, if he'd stolen a whole lot, to give back fourfold of everything he'd stolen would wipe him out and leave him in debt, wouldn't it? So this is evidence that he wasn't quite as big a thief, wasn't quite as big a scoundrel, wasn't quite as big an extortioner as everybody thought. In fact, it probably indicates he hadn't done a whole lot of this. He admitted he had done some, and he, he's publicly acknowledging that and confessing it and making it right. But if he had gotten all of his wealth by extortion, he couldn't possibly pay fourfold so this means that people's opinion of him was way exaggerated. They thought far worse of him than the actual evidence would have supported. And this is evidence of that. It is a surprising testimony in verse 8. It's an informative declaration by Jesus in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It is a declaration of conversion. Today salvation has come to this house. When did it happen? Today. How was it manifested? How do we know it happened? Because of what Zacchaeus just said in verse 8. We can't see the heart, can we? People can tell us. I'm trusting Jesus. I've been saved. How do we know? When we see the fruit, when we see the evidence, when we see the fruit of the Spirit, when we see the change in their life, the change in their heart, the change in their attitude, the change in the things they love. Things I loved before have all gone away. Things I love once more have come to stay. Things are different now. Since that glad day when I gave my heart to Him, what a change. Salvation has come to you and to your house. Who did this salvation benefit? In the words of Jesus, Zacchaeus and his house. So there it is again. We talked about that last Sunday, didn't we? Houses. No, no baptism here, but houses. Well, think it through. In what way did salvation come to his house? Is Jesus saying, because you have trusted in Jesus, then all the other, your wife and everybody else is automatically saved on the basis of your faith? Of course not. Of course not. But he's saying your house is going to greatly benefit. You've got a 
There's a Christian, a real Christian in this house now. What, a, what an impact that's going to make. And yes, you can expect others to follow. You can expect this testimony to impact your wife and your servants and your children, those who are old enough to hear and understand. You can expect that many more are going to believe in your house. This day salvation has come to you and to your house. What a blessing. That should be an encouragement to many of you who are struggling with unconverted loved ones, unconverted children. God saved you, didn't he? Not because you're more worthy of it than anybody else. You know that's not true. He saved you, unworthy as you are. Then why wouldn't he save your children? Why wouldn't he save your loved ones as well? I can't guarantee he will, but I would encourage you to think that he very well may. He's put a, a uh, shining light of truth in that house. He has put the salt of, of uh, truth in that house. He has saved you, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others that you might reach out to them. I would encourage you to think positively about the potential of salvation in your household now that God has saved you. Yes, it is a declaration of conversion. It's a declaration of inclusion. Verse 9 says, because he is also a son of Abraham. Think about that one. Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. Now we've already established that he's not a Gentile, he is a Jew. So why would Jesus say this? He's a son of Abraham. Of course he was. He was one by birth. He was one by circumcision. Undoubtedly circumcised when he was born. He was a natural son of Abraham. But he, uh, not until today, was he a spiritual son of Abraham. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3? That we become true spiritual sons of Abraham, not by birth, not by bloodline, not by Jewishness, not by circumcision or baptism, but by what? By faith. When we have the same believing faith that Abraham had, that's evidence that we are sons of Abraham. Right? Galatians 3 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. What promise? Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Heirs according to the promise if you have faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Yes, this Jew by birth has now become a real Jew, a spiritual Jew, a believing Jew, a true son of Abraham by faith. But the account closes with a declaration of intention. Why did Jesus come? The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Why did Jesus come? To seek the lost. Why did Jesus come? To save the lost. Zacchaeus is one of those. 
Christ sought him out. Christ saved him. Bartimaeus is one of those. Christ sought him out. Christ saved him. Most of you who are sitting here today can say the same thing. Thank God, unworthy as I am, hell-deserving as I am, Jesus sought me out, and he has saved me. And there are some here today who need to come to Christ. And if you will repent and believe, there's the evidence of the working of the Spirit of God in your heart. But I move on in conclusion to touch on three lessons. Number one, in giving. And that is to say that stingy hearts are probably unregenerate hearts. Look at the rich young ruler. He was stingy. He went away lost. Look at Zacchaeus. He got saved and he couldn't give enough. Stingy hearts are probably unregenerate hearts. Because grace teaches us to give. Grace enables us to give beyond the minimum. Not the 20% required of restitution, but fourfold. Beyond the minimum, whatever that may be. Grace enables, enables us to rejoice in our giving, to be glad to be able to do it, to be excited to be able to do it. That's what grace does. Stingy hearts are probably unregenerate hearts. What kind of heart do you have when it comes to giving? Here's a lesson in evangelism. What's the reason that Christ came? To seek and save the lost. That's why he came. What command did Jesus give to all those who have become disciples of his? You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. The reason Christ gave came is to seek and to save. The command Christ gave is that we should go as well, seeking and endeavoring to see God save the lost. It's the obligation of gratitude. If God has saved us, then this is how we show our gratitude and so the question is, what are you doing in response to such lavish grace? Are you involved in the work of the gospel? That brings me thirdly to a lesson in salvation. Isn't it interesting? It's very difficult, in fact, absolutely impossible to pinpoint the exact moment when Zacchaeus was converted. Jesus didn't say, pray this prayer, and if you've prayed it in minutes, you're saved. He didn't. In fact, you have a hard time finding that anywhere. Keep looking, keep looking. Come down this aisle and you'll be saved. Keep looking, you won't find that either. But you will find belief on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And how do you know when somebody's believed? By the changed heart, by the changed life, by the changed desires, by the evidence of God's work in the heart. The exact moment of Zacchaeus' salvation is difficult to pinpoint, but the abundant evidence is impossible to ignore. We see that Zacchaeus became aware of his sin and need of a Savior. That's evidence. We say that Zacchaeus had a strong desire to find Jesus, the friend of sinners and the Savior of sinners. That's evidence. We realize that Zacchaeus acknowledged and confessed his sins. There's evidence. We see that Zacchaeus desired a changed life. There's evidence. We see Zacchaeus' determination to make things right for the sins that he had done to others in the past. There's the evidence of conversion. We see that Zacchaeus had a generous giving heart. There's the evidence of conversion. Yes, yes, we can, we can see the evidence for what Jesus said. Today, salvation has come to this house. And we don't know if he prayed in the tree. We don't, 
In fact, we don't know if he even articulated and mouthed the prayer, but we do know that his heart responded in faith. Dear friend, do you see the evidence of these things in your life? Dear friend, have you felt your need of cleansing and gone to Christ? And if you have not before, do you feel that now? Do you recognize that now? And are you willing to go to Christ no matter who thinks what about it? Because if you are, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the friend of sinners. Not the self-righteous, not the, not the ones who justify themselves, not the ones who think they're all right, not the ones who are resting upon their their Christian home and background and Christian school and good church and maybe even baptism and church membership and who knows what else. No, it doesn't say Jesus is the friend of the righteous. It's Jesus is the friend of sinners. And he can set you free. Go to him. Shall we pray? Father, seal these words to every heart as needed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.